1: Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor at The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Coming up this week, the real gender gap is in pensions.
2: So women work fewer hours than men over the lifetime, fewer years. They have less long careers, in less well-paid jobs. And all of that sort of ultimately gets exacerbated in, in their pension.
1: And the geophone is causing a buzz in India
0: they just want to drive the competitors out of the market. The way they figure it is this is a winner-takes-all market.
1: But first, the special report in this week's Economist covers emerging markets. These are often seen as risky places to invest, prey to political instability, economic crisis and market volatility. But do those stereotypes still hold true? The report's author is Simon Cox, The Economist's Emerging Markets editor, and he joins us on the line from Hong Kong. Hello, Simon. Hi. Why now for a report on emerging markets?
3: It's a particularly good time to look at emerging markets because the recovery is unusually broad. It's not unusually fast, but it's unusually broad. Um, There are 24 emerging economies in the most popular stock market index, and all of them that have so far reported their second quarter, quarter quarter-on-quarter growth, have reported positive growth. And that's the broadest recovery that I've seen since 2009. So I think it's a particularly good time to ask whether that recovery can continue.
1: But isn't that in part because returns elsewhere in the world tend to be quite low?
3: Uh, It is in part because of that. Um, Certainly uh, a lot of uh, investment managers were making the pitch uh, several quarters ago that uh, compared with hugely expensive, highly valued, developed market stocks, emerging markets looked like a relative bargain. And that was quite persuasive to the big global asset allocators, uh, the people we sometimes call macro tourists. And and broadly speaking, those people aren't hugely discriminating when they look at emerging markets. They think of them as a block. They may check in on a couple of the very big ones, uh, China, Brazil, perhaps India. Um, But they're not too attentive to the sort of bottom up stories that those emerging markets are telling.
1: But it's only a few years, what, four years, I think, since we had the so-called taper tantrum in emerging markets, when the fear of uh, rising interest rates in the developed world led to people panicking and fleeing those markets. Now we're in a tightening cycle again in the US and and perhaps even in Europe. Uh, Might that not happen again?
3: Well, I think that's what's so interesting about this uh, particular Fed tightening cycle. I mean, there's a long history of emerging markets getting into trouble whenever the Fed tightens or even thinks about tightening. Uh, The taper tantrum you mentioned from 2013 is only the most recent example. Uh, Perhaps the worst example was the Volcker shock uh, from 1979 to 1981. uh, That essentially uh, exacerbated or may even have uh, caused the Latin American debt crisis that really cost that region a decade of growth. So the Fed is something that emerging markets have learned to be afraid of. Uh, what's so fascinating this time around, though, is that they seem to have uh, won themselves a measure of freedom from the Fed, a measure of uh, insulation. So we're now you know, quite some time into a gentle Fed-tightening cycle. Uh, and most emerging markets now have lower central bank policy rates than they did when the Fed started back in December 2015. And, and many of them are actually looking to cut again. Brazil is a good example. It's cut six times uh, since this Fed tightening cycle began. So I think that uh, two things are going on. Uh, One is that emerging markets are less sensitive to the Fed, partly because they've got uh, more flexible exchange rates and they've learned to control inflation based on their own institutions rather than tracking the dollar. And the other thing that's going on is that inflation in a lot of emerging markets is extremely low. Um, It's near all-time lows, in fact, and some uh, emerging markets like Thailand, you could argue inflation is actually too low.
1: Stepping back a bit, though, Simon, uh, you take issue in your report, I think, with some of the what you call myths about emerging markets. And and one of those is the so-called middle income trap, i.e. the idea that it's much easier for emerging markets to grow fast when they're low-income countries becoming slightly richer, but harder to get out of that and become uh, become well-off countries. that That is true, isn't it? It is harder.
3: Funnily enough, if you look at um, the historical record, um, if anything, middle-income countries tend to grow slightly faster than low-income and uh, high-income countries. So, uh, It's important to stress that as economies mature, we'd naturally expect them to slow down to some degree. That's just a natural result of uh, catch-up growth and the diminishing scope for that as you get closer to the leading economies. So if you were using the simplest possible growth framework, you'd expect high-income countries to grow slower than middle-income countries and middle-income countries to grow a bit slower than low-income countries. Um, The middle-income trap thesis is that middle-income countries grow slower than both uh, the richer economies above them and the poorer economies below them. Uh, The usual argument is that they get squeezed between uh, low wages on the one hand and high technology on the other. That, I think, is a myth. Um, There's very little evidence for it. In fact, there's reasonably strong evidence uh, against it. Um, What you can say in favour of that literature, though, is that um, economies face different dangers as they evolve. So, Poor countries face the danger of stagnation, they face various kinds of poverty traps, and obviously high-income countries can stagnate too. Uh, Middle-income countries certainly can slow down. The reasons why a middle-income country might slow down, though, can be distinctive. Uh, They can be the result, for example, of uh, clinging too long to a growth formula that worked in the past. Or sometimes they're the result of prematurely trying to adopt uh, advanced economy models that just aren't suitable, uh, premature overinvestment in things like the knowledge economy or um, fancy uh, fads that um, rich countries can afford to play with, but middle-income countries need to be a bit warier of.
1: What about another prevalent stereotype, that of the commodity curse, that resource-rich developing countries tend to develop that, that one resource at the expense of developing manufacturing industry and other things that might help them become richer?
3: I think you know, a couple of things have happened. I mean, A number of emerging markets have, I think, begun to adopt uh, macroeconomic policy frameworks that should help them to curb the excesses of the commodity cycle. Um, The best example, the most famous example is is Chile, which has this fiscal rule, which means that there's a lot of government restraint when the copper price is high, which allows a certain amount of fiscal easing when the copper price is low. Uh, Russia tried to adopt a similar fiscal rule, but got all of the parameters wrong, got into a bit of a mess. But it now has also begun to experiment with a slightly better counter-cyclical framework, So I'm hopeful that those uh, improvements in the sort of institutions of macroeconomic policy should help to curb some of the excesses of the commodity cycle. Uh, More broadly, um, is there a resource curse? Again, the the evidence isn't nearly as strong as as people think. Um, One thing that might happen is that if you have a, a big resources sector, it adds to your level of GDP per capita, but reduces the growth rate of GDP per capita, I think you see that in some countries, a bit like South Africa, for example, that the mining and quarrying sector adds about 7% to uh, its GDP, but actually grows more slowly than the rest of the economy. And so it uh, detracts from uh, its growth rate.
1: Simon Cox, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, do you think emerging markets have become more mature and more resilient? Please contact us via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Next, we've talked a lot about the gender pay gap before, but the gender gap in pensions has largely been overlooked. And in fact, this gap is far larger. Women in the EU on average receive 40% less in pension income than men do. And new reforms to European pensions could mean the gap may widen even further. Sasha Nauter is our European finance correspondent and is on the line now. So what's the basic reason for this gap?
2: Basic reason won't come as a massive surprise but it's a it's a reflection of the labor force position of, of women so women work um, fewer hours than men over the lifetime fewer fewer years they have less long careers in less well-paid jobs um, and all of that sort of ultimately gets exacerbated in, in their pension and um, so where you know the, the, the women's pay gap is well known the gender pension gap is less well known, but in many ways it's, it's much larger.
1: Does it differ from country to country? Where is it widest?
2: You're absolutely right. The differences are huge. It's, it's widest. It tends to be widest in countries that rely, where pensions rely heavily on workplace contributions. So if you think of countries like the Netherlands or Germany, um, a fairly large chunk of pensions comes from whatever you put in during your working years. And of course, if you haven't worked as much or you haven't made as large contributions, then that bit will, will obviously be be smaller. Um, on the flip side, if you look at places like Denmark, which do quite well on female participation, um, their state pensions are means tested and therefore they can make up for any gaps in pensions. But you also have a lot of the uh, ex-Soviet states um, with very small gaps because, of course, in the, in the days of communism, most women worked and therefore actually you had a a funny phase where where contributions were very similar. We are of course yet to see whether places like the Baltic uh, will continue to have a small gap in the in the future.
1: And Sasha, is it indeed true that reforms to European pensions might widen this gap even further?
2: Yes, I think they will. The move away from defined benefit pensions, where the pension the pension contribution promises you a fixed um, payout. The move from that to the contribution where that, that payout is uncertain. So in general, I think the move to linking pensions even closer to however much you earned in your working life and however many years you can contribute to a pension scheme, I think that will, so long as women have the unequal position in the labour market, only make things worse.
1: And is anything being done to address this problem? Indeed, it's hard to see what could be done in, in the current marketplace.
2: Well, yeah, that's a good question. I mean there are there are some things you can do around the edges, um, particularly around stimulating women to make larger contributions to say their workplace pensions than men because they should anticipate longer breaks as things stand today. Um some people think I'm not you know, this is controversial what I'm about to say now, but some people think that women don't take enough risks. In their investments, or feel less certain in their investment decisions, and therefore perhaps um, you know should be taught to be a bit more gung ho. Um, but I think the much bigger things, and this will this will sound familiar, but the bigger things are of course around addressing the root of the problem, which is that women still will have lower earnings than men in their careers, um, and the and the solutions for that sort of thing are well known: um, affordable childcare, paid parental leave, um, and flexible working conditions. Those sorts of silver bullets, if you will, uh, I think are the real things that will, uh, will
1: help change this. Sashunata thank you very much for joining us and for anybody wondering what the noise is, she was on the line from Lisbon Airport. And finally, one of the most eagerly awaited product launches in India this year is underway. That's the Geophone from the giant Reliance conglomerate. And the excitement is generated not just by the phone's features, but because it is, in effect, being given away free. Sandy Pinal is our South Asia business and finance correspondent and joins us on the line from Mumbai. Hello, Stan. Hi, Simon. Say, how many of these geophones are being given away?
0: So the, the figure I've seen so far is about 6 million uh, that have been that have been ordered. They're just starting to get into people's hands. Uh, and, and seeing as they're so irresistibly priced, uh, the expectation from analysts is that about 100 million of these will be uh, in the market by March 2019, so within about 15-18 months. Mm
1: They're not being handed away without any payment at all, though, are they?
0: No, that's right. You do need to pay a, a deposit, and I think the idea is twofold. The first one is, is to avoid abuses of the system, and I, I think there's also an advantage under the new GST rules, the Goods and Services Tax, that the the tax burden isn't so high. Um, but uh, fifteen hundred rupees is about twenty twenty-five dollars, so so uh, not a, a huge amount uh, even by by Indian standards. Um, and then you pay about another $2 a month, uh, 150 rupees, uh, for a subscription, which gives you uh, an enormous amount of data. I mean, basically enough to watch one or two Bollywood films per day and and free voice. Um, I think you get five hours free of, of speaking time a day. So essentially, once you've paid your 153 rupees, uh, you're done. That that should be your final bill. So but by any standards, that's an incredibly good deal.
1: So this is, in effect, a, a full feature smartphone. I mean, from the pictures I've seen, it looks more like a sort of mungle, cross between a smartphone and the old-style Nokia handsets that Indians used to use ubiquitously. Is, is that
0: right? Yeah, so they, they call it a smartphone. It's not quite that. I mean, it doesn't have a touchscreen, for example, which, which many people would see as the defining feature. Um, of a smartphone, uh, but the key thing for uh, for its purposes is that you can stream movies on it. Uh, so Geo is is not just a phone, it's not just a it's not just a, a data provider, but it, it also has uh, all these deals uh, with with film producers, TV producers, content producers, um, which mean that you can you can stream movies on it. And if you go, I mean, every day I I kind of see. Uh, the streets of Mumbai, and it's 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 now ubiquitous that people um, are are just you know watching uh, watching movies on four G phones in a way that you wouldn't even see in 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 Europe or the U S, where data is, is still more expensive than what you have in India.
1: So one assumes that Reliance's competitors in this market are feeling pretty edgy.
0: Oh, uh, very much so. I mean, they're they're losing subscribers uh, by, by the month. Uh, the smaller ones um, of about a dozen um, are are basically going bust. Um, Reliance Communications, which is. Uh, which belongs to the other reliance, um, which is the uh, Mukesh Ambani's younger brother. Um, the the two brothers split uh, acrimoniously uh, about fifteen years ago. Um, his his telecoms company was due to merge with a with a smaller rival that has now not gone through, um, and it is in trouble. Uh, Tata, the the Indian conglomerate, um, its uh, its uh, telephony arm is in is in dire straits, um, and the other ones, which include Vodafone amongst others, are are busy merging with each other. Uh, and trying to figure out how to compete with Reliance. Reliance has spent something like $25 billion, $30 billion on this um, and and taken about 130 million new subscribers. So it's only at 10% now and its ambitions are clearly much, much bigger. It wants to get, it says, to 50% of the market. So it, it, it really is not ruling out much, much more carnage in the months and years to come.
1: So in the short term, is it aiming to make money out of this or simply to drive its competitors out of the market?
0: I think they they just want to drive the competitors out of the market. The way they figure it is this is a winner-takes-all market. Um, The best-case scenario is that um, they they really are the the one company uh, that can provide the quality of data services that people might become used to. Um, in the next in the next couple of years. Um, the, the worst case scenario is they're one of three or four um, in, a, in a comfortable oligopoly. The fundamental question with Geo Simon is whether the economics can stack up in any way. Reliance says that it spent something like 25 to 30 billion dollars building out this state-of-the-art network. So if you assume that they get to 250, 300 million customers that still implies a customer acquisition cost of a hundred dollars. Now If each of those customers is giving you $2 a month, then that's before the cost of maintaining the network, uh, before the cost of of buying in those Bollywood films that they're going to watch. That implies an awfully long time before you see any kind of return. Uh, The other thing is that you're investing in technology that fundamentally becomes obsolete. I mean, who remembers who had the best 2G network? Uh, Geo might uh, win the 4G war, but just in time for somebody to come up with 5G or 6G or 7G, uh, by which time their huge investment... is going to look rather out of date. So it's a big bet uh, by India's richest man, um, but it's, a, it's not a given uh, that it's going to pay off yet.
1: Stanley Pinal, thanks for joining us. And let's leap him to his Bollywood movies. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Do please rate us on iTunes. And to read more about all the stories, check out the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Simon Long. Thanks for joining us.